the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You look nice today. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Short, but nice. <laughs> yeah. So I'm having some back problems. And uh, it was it, it reached fever pitch during Friday's show. <laughs> yeah, of course you're not aware of it because, you know, this is radio. But Kath was moving around oh my most uncomfortably. So the solution has been... That I have... Uh, drop, well, first of all, I spent the weekend really working on my back mm-hmm. to try to get it mm-hmm. loosened up. And I, so now I've decided that if I put my chair as close to the floor as possible, uh, somehow that's helping my back. Mm-hmm. So I'm about, I don't know, 18 or 20 inches mm-hmm. lower than I was. You're very short. There's a power play going on here in the studio, and it's not of my own making. I'm sorry to say that. It's kind of ridiculous. I feel hobbit-like <laughs> yeah, doing but, the show. Well, I can look right past your head. I could, but the good thing is that my back feels much better at this angle. So right. I'm not sure what that means why, or why that is, right. but I'm just going to take it. Mm-hmm. Well, today is National Compliment Day. You see, I, I complimented. Is. Yes, I did. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. National Compliment Day. Oh. Now, uh, who doesn't like a compliment? I, right? I think everybody, everybody likes one. I remember when I was a kid working my first real job, I worked with a guy who was a few years older than me, and he was intentional about complimenting people. That's a wonderful thing was to a, think of on a daily basis. It was an excellent skill set. And I saw that and I thought, oh, that's really cool. I mean, he changed the temperature in the room. And this was just one of his things. It was not disingenuous. He was very sincere in his compliments. He just found the best thing to see people in the light and then tell them about it. So compliments I are bet a good thing. he's been very successful in I life. bet he has been. Kevin. Yeah. Very nice. I have not seen him in decades. Right. But I wonder where he is. Anyway, happy National Compliment Day. Thank you. John, you have a wonderful voice. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It's I've, not, I've not always of my thought doing. that. Not of my doing. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those well, things. Well, but you can manipulate it. God bless you. And you, sir, have a wonderful woohoo. You do. You yeah. could manipulate it poorly. I guess I could. So, I mean, I'm glad you don't. Trying my best. Coming up on today's program in the 5 o'clock hour today, uh, Paul's prescription for political anxiety. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that with Steve Bateman. Um, Also, we're talking about politics in both hours. In this hour, we're going to pray don't play politics with Brandon Cooper. We'll see what that means. Um, Also, as the show unfolds, uh, tried and true Pittsburgh restaurants. Next, Pittsburgh put together a list, and most of them I very much agree with. You've been to most of these? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are also eight new restaurants springing up in Pittsburgh Excellent. that are kind of interesting. And uh, the Washington Post doesn't seem to like Gary Chapman's love language uh, worldview. This is sort of like one of the centerpieces of what it is to be a believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's made inroads, of course, into the secular culture as well, right? Did you do that with your... Your love language. Yeah, of course. Did you? Mm-hmm. See, I never did that. Yeah. I don't even know what mine is. Gary's joined us multiple times. Well, I know that, I know he has, but yeah. like I never did it with my husband, oh, I'm see. saying. I never said, hey, what's your, what's love, your love language? language? Do you know what your husband's... No, I don't I, know what mine is. From what you're, well, I think, from what you're telling me, I think I understand. Really? Kind of like ours. Well, your husband's love language is to save money. Well, yes, that's very right? true. Yours is to spend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which might account for some of the issues a, a we've had. There. That yeah. could have Just to similar be. to mine as well. Anyway. anyway, without further ado, as we start the show by looking at the news stories of the day. So, Kath, please give us the top four at four. It's Wednesday, John. 
the 24th of January. Lovely. 2024. Can I say happy birthday to my niece, Janelle? Hey, happy I birthday. I love her so much. Very nice. Today's her birthday. So I'm thinking of her now. Okay, number one. Also thinking of President Donald Trump. After his win in the New Hampshire primary last night, John offered this. Quote, I don't get too angry. I get even. So despite sweeping the tiny hamlet of Dixville notch with all six of its votes just past midnight, Nikki Haley ran closer to Trump than the most recent polling suggested, but still lost by about 11 points. While she is already facing immense pressure to drop out of the race, she struck a confrontational tone before supporters last night, saying, quote, New Hampshire is first in the nation, not the last. This race is far from over. The next one is my sweet state of South Carolina. And then her team tweeted out a hashtag. Hashtag bring it. Mm. It's over. You know that. While we're talking about the former president, federal appeals court in D.C. rejected a request by Donald Trump's legal team to lift a gag order placed on him in the federal case regarding his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The ruling was issued unanimously by 11 judges on the D.C. Court of Appeals. From today's dispatch, number two. The Turkish parliament, John, voted yesterday to approve Sweden's bid for NATO membership, ending a nearly two-year block on the country's entrance into the defensive alliance. If Turkish President Erdogan signs the measure, as he's widely expected to do, then it's only Hungary left. That'll be the last obstacle to Sweden joining NATO. That's also from today's dispatch. Number three, the CIA, John, has released a third video aimed at recruiting Russian officials unhappy with their political leadership. Whoa. How about It's a virtual effort that U.S. intelligence officials say has been effective in helping the American spy agency make contact with potential sources inside Russia. Speaking at the International Spy Museum, which I didn't know was a thing, in Washington, D.C. yesterday, CIA Deputy Director David Cohen said the latest video was basically a pitch to folks in Russia who are unhappy with the regime, who want a better future for their country, one that, frankly, the U.S. can help them achieve if they work for us. How does that work? The video is set to swelling music. It's narrated by a fiction, fictional Russian official who cites Tolstoy and says he hopes to secure a better future in Russia for his son. Wow. Fascinating. The CIA director, William Burns, said this is a once-in-a-generation recruitment opportunity in Russia. Can we see it? Yeah. You can go online and look at it. You want me to pull it up during the commercial break? Yeah, I'm kind of curious. I will. That's from today's CBS News. And number four, the Carnegie Science Center is getting a transformational gift and a brand new name. Philanthropists Daniel G. Kamen and Carol L. Kamen will donate a massive $65 million to the institution, which will be renamed the Daniel G. and Carol L. Kamen Science Center in honor of the gift, the largest single gift to the museum since 1895 and the largest given by anyone other than Andrew Carnegie. Fabulous. And that is your top four at four. That is so cool. I mean, that's a lot of money to give to an institution. Are you kidding me? The Caymans, I I don't know anything about them. Me neither, except that Daniel's a real estate developer. He has loved science his whole life, and he made a telescope when he was a kid at Buell Planetarium, which he brought yesterday when they made their announcement. (laughs) That's super cool. Isn't that awesome? So it will now be called the Cayman Science Center Mm -hmm. as opposed to the Carnegie Science Center. Yep. It's still going to be operating under the umbrella of the Carnegie Museums, just in case you're worried about that. Well, it's, at least it's not going to be called the Accusure Science Center. No, which is and a, it's Accusure. Whatever. It's a, you, don't even, you don't care, do you? <laughs> no. Of course not. Because it's Heinz Field. Okay. We'll take a quick break, come back. Let's talk next about the state of Christian filmmaking. Cap Stewart joins us next. We're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home on 101.5 Word FM, W-O-R-D.
Over many, many years, Christian films, I would think, I would fair to say this, they have an uneven reputation. Mm -hmm. There's been some really excellent Christian films. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a lot of clunkers as well. But, I mean, that's just the, the state of the art, whether it's Christian or secular films, right? Some good, some bad. But Christian's film, I, I, Christian films, I think, uniquely struggle more so because of the pointedness of evangelism. And the message and discipleship, all of that. Okay, what about you were involved in the film industry for a long time. Yeah. when you, But you weren't doing Christian films. I was not. So did you know that Christian film... The Christian film industry existed? Yes. Or what did you think of it? Yeah, I, I knew it. I think like a lot of people, if you're a believer, you you, you want to see something that's interesting, right? Especially about Jesus or faith mm -hmm. or community, all those different things that make us believers. But just a couple of films, I mean, I don't want to single anybody out. I no, mean, of course not. But it's it just, I would say, oftentimes poor. But I would say also, with that in mind, there's been a renaissance of Christian films. There have been many excellent Christian films in these last years. And, of course, with streaming, something like The Chosen. Oh, my gosh. Out of the park, right? Yeah. Cap Stewart's back with us. He's been a guest on our show in the past. Author of God Does Not Need Your Good Works, But Your Neighbor Does. Here today to talk to us about the state of Christian filmmaking. Hey, Cap. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on the show again. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. All right, Cap, your perspective then. The last two or three decades, how do you see Christian film? Well, I, I totally agree with you all in that there, uh, Christian filmmaking has had a bit of a checkered past and uh, plenty of room for growth even still. But I myself have been encouraged, which I guess is saying something from this, just considering the fact that I have been, uh, I don't know if cynical is the best word, but I have definitely been fairly critical of the, the faith-based filmmaking industry over the years. And it's because I, I want to see uh, I want to see good stuff come out of, of Christian sure. filmmaking, and a lot of what does come out tends to be, like you all said, it tends to be preachy, even though film is a visual medium that does better at showing rather than telling. There seems to be this mindset that a lot of Christians have is that, oh, well, we, we need to use this story to tell rather than show. And so uh, a lot of on-the-nose didactic dialogue that kind of press home the point just to make sure that everyone can walk away with, oh, this is what we have learned, and that kind of interrupts the flow of the narrative so definitely there has been that issue but but i i am encouraged to just i think we're slowly heading in the right direction and as you all mentioned the chosen is is definitely one of the higher level productions out there um uh, for for the faith-based community and really the larger world a lot of other people outside of you know christianity are taking notice and saying hey this is a really good product and this looks really good and it's really engaging and we're uh, we're interested so um so i am i am tentatively hopeful about the direction that, that we are going in. That's good. That's fair. Tentatively hopeful. Okay, so let's talk a little <laughs> bit, Cap, about The Chosen. Uh, I read recently sure. um, season four is underway. Um, right. I mean, from the get-go, right, it's it's just been an excellently produced. The story is was very well told. The acting is top-notch. Uh, have you watched all, all the seasons of The Chosen? I've gotten a bit behind. Actually, my wife and I just finished season two a couple nights ago, and uh, so we're about to start with season three. And thankfully, because it's gotten so popular, you know, it's streaming. It's available on several streaming services, so we're going to get into that soon. And um, I think our favorite is season one so far, but uh, but I still agree. Just like production values, acting, like there's a lot of top quality uh, filmmaking here, and that is encouraging to see. And just the emphasis of, especially when they're focusing on the disciples and the people following Jesus or affected by Jesus, really kind of just 
puts a neat spin on the the gospel narrative, just seeing his effect on other people, and uh, I, I I do like that. Mm-hmm. Cap, what do you think is contributing to the improvement in Christian film? I mean, I know technology is available to for so much cheaper than it ever used to be, um, and for the right. average person, it's easier for a for a filmmaker to do something in their bedroom, right, than they were able to do, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. a decade ago. It doesn't mean it's good, but it's certainly films are, are right. easier to produce. So, is that part of it, or is, or is there a change in in Christian thinking, or what do you think figures in? You know, that's a good question, and probably the answer is multifaceted. Technology is more available to folks, and that, that certainly could be a factor. And, and, and I would guess, to one degree or another, I think people are entering into the filmmaking sphere who are, you know, Christians and faith-based, and they're recognizing, okay, like, there is just an inherent um, dignity in creating a, a well-told story. It doesn't need to have this huge moral that knocks you over the head. It can just be a well-told story that is true to life, and that honors the God of truth. And so I, I think people are starting to realize, you know, we don't need to have these these blatant messages. And, I mean, that that still is there. Um, like one of the films that recently came out last year, The Shift, actually has gotten a lot of praise um, and evidently is well-made. I have not yet seen it myself, but uh, one reviewer said, you know, the one thing kind of holding this back is that there were a few places where the message was kind of on the nose. And so, like, that that... That um, propensity, I think, is still there, but it seems like uh, Christian filmmakers are starting to realize, you know, there's more freedom here than to just do a sermon or a lesson via film. We can actually tell some interesting stories. And so, like, just in, you know, 2023 alone, we had branching out into different genres of, like, true-to-life stories, like Jesus Revolution or Surprised by Oxford, and then you have you know, Bible stories we've been talking about, The Chosen, and His Only Son was another popular one that came out last year, and then even new genres that haven't really had a whole lot of faith-based content, like The Thriller, which we got The Sound of Freedom, which I, I did see, and which was really, really well made, and even the horror genre with Nefarious, which uh, was hit or miss there, or like sci-fi with The Shift. So uh, it seems like folks are branching out and trying to just... um uh, just to tell good stories and not be so caught up in just doing just kind of the same old, same old. That's really good. Cap Stewart's with us talking about uh, Christian films, the state of Christian filmmaking in 2024. And I, I think for, for me, Cap, uh, and, you know, not being a Hollywood insider, but just looking at money. I mean, of course, money drives everything. And, and you know, there, there has been some success in Christian filmmaking. So I think producers in Hollywood, those who are themselves believers, are more willing to put money into Christian films, thinking, I could make a little money as opposed to losing money. So it's a more of a <laughs> sure bet, right? So people, you know, let's throw right. a, a 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollars, which, you know, more money produces a better quality actor, a better quality director, a better quality right. you know, production facility. It just rises, yeah. you know, raises the bar for everyone, like The Chosen or Sound of Fury or Jesus Revolution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's like money doesn't necessarily equal, you know, artistic or good, but, but there is a certain degree to where, like, you need money in order for it to be just well-made, to yeah. pay the right people, the people who are the professionals, the, the right film stock, and so on and so forth. And if you try cutting budgets too much, like, that ultimately hurts your story and, and doesn't, uh, I, I think... I think, um, like, money is a necessity to a certain degree, for sure. For sure. Okay, so uh, you, you talked just ever so quickly in passing about Jesus' revolution and Sound of Freedom, but you mentioned the shift. Now, I, I have not seen the shift, to be honest. Uh, right. I, know, I know very little about it. Talk to our audience about okay. this. 
Sure. So it, it is evidently uh, loosely based on or inspired by the book of Job from the Bible, and it's uh, it's actually a, a parallel kind of multiverse storyline about a guy who gets shifted from one reality to another and loses everything and and has kind of this this um, back and forth with the, the the devil character trying to get back to his wife and to his you know the reality that he wants to live in and get stuck for a large part of the film in this dystopian wasteland. And um, and so uh, evidently production values are fairly high for that one. Like it looks really good. Mm. And um, even though it might be preachy at a few points here or there, uh, a lot of folks are saying, hey, this is this is an obvious step in the right direction. And uh, and so people seem to be really liking it. So I, I, I'm encouraged to, to, to hear that. Fabulous. Cap, what about some of your favorite faith-based films? From the past or recent? I, I think you can, like, I'll just go aggregate, like, yeah. over time. Sure. And uh, that, that's a good question. I, you know, I would probably, near the top would be, and this would be probably for a lot of people, too, is The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson that came out several years ago. And, you know, very violent, so not for everybody, but... Um, but he definitely, this was somebody who really lent an artistic quality to the story of Christ to a degree that the Christian community hadn't seen before. And it was very artfully told, very well done, very gripping, and very emotionally impactful. And so that's definitely high up there for, for me. Um, and, you know, actually just recently our family was exposed to, uh, it, it was an animated film called The Star about uh, the donkey who ends up... Um, carrying Mary to, to Bethlehem, and and you would think that a semi-quasi-comedy about the nativity was like, ooh, there's so many ways that could go wrong, but it was actually very respectful and, and reverent, but also really funny and engaging, and we just really enjoyed that, and we ended up, it's like, you know, that might end up being kind of a Christmas tradition for us, is watching that every every uh, Christmas season, because we really enjoyed that one as well. Excellent. What about you, John? Well, you know, um, uh, Facing the Giants. Oh my gosh! To me, is my favorite Christian film. <laughs> I can't. I tell you, I love that scene. I, I love he's the movie. Blindfolded, and he, I love. I, I just love that movie. I mean, that's uh, that film is easily it fifteen is. years old, yeah. right? I love that uh, movie. And of yeah, course, yeah. you know, our kids were little when we first saw that film. Every time I watch that movie, I break down crying. I know. You know, it's coming. I know, and it can be preachy in a couple parts. Sure. But who cares? No. Like it's just it's real. <laughs> you know what else? The mission. Oh, the mission. Robert De Niro. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, Scorsese. is it Scorsese? Yeah. Well, that's epic. Yeah. That is absolutely epic. Yeah. I, I that to me, that's. I th- I feel like that's the greatest Christian film I've ever seen. I agree. What do yeah. you? Yeah, I would, yeah. And Kath, that's interesting. I'm glad that Kath brought this up because um, Alyssa Wilkinson joins us. She's a New York Times film critic. She's been joining us oh, for Vox, years. Vox.com. Uh, uh, yeah. New York Times. Oh, that's right. And so she has talked about three major directors producing big-time Christian films. I mean, films with Christian themes this year. So it's become Ah, mainstream here. You know, I mean, I mean, directors with major Hollywood heft are not afraid to say, I'm a believer and I'm going to explore Jesus here. Um, Again, I think, you know, the money flows there and we will be beneficiaries here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of potential as we look to the future. Yeah. So, so here we are now, 2024. Um, I think, you know, the art form is uh, really sort of ascending, like we've talked about. Uh, the Chosen, of course, mainstream. You can see that on in many number of streaming platforms. Uh, Scorsese, right. um, you know, any number of major Hollywood directors. This is sort of like, a, I think, a turning point 
where people are seeing Jesus, whether it's, you know, obliquely or, you know, in the center of the film, not to be afraid about this. But there is still, and I would say this, there is still, and maybe I would even raise my hand in here. When I'm about to go see a Christian film, I'm still a little leery. Right. I just and <laughs> yes. I think that just goes with the history yeah. of what we've been fed in the past. You're hoping it's not some cheese ball thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I found myself very, very allergic to cheese in Christian films and, and, and have been wary myself. Um, but uh, but thankfully, like last year, the, the two ones that I had seen, uh, Sound of Freedom was one. And then Nefarious, the, the, the horror film that I mentioned, yeah. which is oh, yeah. actually more more of like a like a thriller. It really isn't that much of a horror Film. Um, I, I, w- I was pleasantly surprised because it was that was by the filmmakers of God's Not Dead, who who I yeah, I've been fairly critical of them in the God's Not Dead franchise, and but but walking into that film, I was just I was pleasantly surprised by just how well I thought they did with the genre, and and uh, it was just a very engaging film, especially with like two people sitting across the table talking to each other for almost the entire time. So you would think, well, how? How interesting can that be? But it actually, overall, to me, was uh, was very interesting. So I was I was generally pleased with uh, how that turned out. Nefarious. You saw this in the theater, or yes. did you see it streaming? Yes, sir. No, it was. Uh, I saw it. I saw it in theater just because I, I heard the premise about a guy being told by supposedly a demon possessed man that he was going to commit three murders by the end of the day, and I was like, okay, this sounds pretty interesting. I I need to find out what I this think is I about. I need to see and, that. Uh, That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it Cap- doesn't end the greatest, but uh, but it, it was overall very good. Good, very good. Okay, as you leave us though, I do want to say that for all of our. Uh, criticisms about Christian film. If you're a Christian yeah. filmmaker, you know that you're going to release this to an audience of really critical people. And right. I, like it's, it's a tough audience. I, I really think yes. it is. Yes. I, I think you're right. I, I, I would not. And I, 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 I try to be careful. I, I, I don't want to be, like I said, just absolutely cynical and intentionally and, and perpetually negative. I, because I, they, I, I do not envy Christian filmmakers no. entering into the marketplace trying to produce something. No, because that, that just it, it is it is a tough audience. It's a tough gig, and uh, but thankfully we're seeing people rise up who are developing some actual skills. And uh, so yeah, so like I said, tentatively hopeful about where we're going in the future. Okay. Cap, thanks a lot. Uh, we enjoyed the conversation. Very interesting. Appreciate you know your finger on the pulse of Christian filmmaking. Well, my pleasure. It's always, a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Cap Stewart, he is the author of God Does Not Need Your Good Works, But Your Neighbor Does. Also, as you hear, he is uh, someone interested in Christian films. You don't want to be critical, of course, because, uh, I, mean, I mean... It's okay to be critical, but... Not crush. Not crush. Right. Baby names are often an indicator of where we are as a society. And, of course, baby names, like anything, uh, are trendy. Names come and go. I mean, my name, John, Mm -hmm. you don't meet any kid today, any baby or child whose name is John, right? Do you know? I, mean, I, I do little, know a couple kids who are kids. in elementary school whose names are John. Really? Although they're both called Johnny. Uh-huh. Johnny. Yeah. I was a Johnny. Yeah. And there was no, there was no Kathy. No Kathy. Uh-huh. No Kathleen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's something called um, uh, baby, let's see, what is this? Baby uh, machine. 
which tracks baby names for the okay. past 30 plus years. And they, they say, here's, let me do this. Baby girl names that are at the risk of going extinct. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they have a listing of like one to 500 baby names. Here's quick names that are, you know, uh, that are names that are going to go up. Brooke. Brooke is down 300 slots. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you think like someone like Brooke Shields probably below right. that, right? Sure. Blake. Shelton. Mm-hmm. But that's a girl's name. Right. right? Oh, Blake is a girl's name. He could okay. be, right? Mackenzie is down. Uh-huh. Brooklyn is down. Reagan. Remember? Th- I, yeah. I know someone by the name of Reagan. Sure. Do you? A little mm-hmm. girl yep. now as a young girl. Callie. I knew a Callie. That name is about to go extinct. Nora. Nora was so big a decade ago. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like felt like every time I turned around, there was one. Baby boy names that are at the risk of going out of, uh, not even extinct, I would say, just losing their trendiness. Julius. Johnny. Johnny. Johnny's down 150 spots. Sorry about that. Brady. Now, Tom Brady. How many kids are named Brady in Probably Boston? Probably a lot. Right? Ronan is down. I didn't know Ronan was up. Mm. I have to be honest. Ronan, the only Ronan you know is Ronan Farrow. Right. That's the old, seriously. That's the right? only one I know. Clayton. Do you know any Claytons? I think some kids out in the east end of Pittsburgh. I was going to say right. there's a big house there, right? but yeah. I don't think I know any Claytons. Princeton. That's somebody's name. That'd be a hard. That's one. so pretentious. That'd be rough. That's tough. I'm sorry. How about Bo? Like as in Bo Bridges? Yeah. Bo knows. Yeah. Right? Oh, but it B-O or B? B-O. No, isn't Bo Bridges B-E-A-U? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Right. Preston. Yeah. Again, it's a little blue blood, yeah. right? Baylor. As in the university? Mm-hmm. And Raphael. All those names, maybe Raphael. what we just said, with good reason, are losing. It's hard to name a baby, It isn't is it? hard to name a baby. You know what I like? Hmm. Really old names. Yes. I like when somebody names a kid Stella. Lily. I like that. Me too. All right. Well, for those who are interested, we've just come through the Iowa caucus. Mm -hmm. Yesterday was the New Hampshire primary. Right. So the temperature is now rising on the presidential stakes 2024. Which is worrisome since I feel like the temperature has been kind of hot for the last six or seven years. Mm -hmm. So how do we go through this period? I don't know. But there has to be a better way than what we've done in the past. I, I, I really think there has to be. Well, we're happy to welcome to the show Brandon Cooper, who is a senior pastor at City View Community Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. He wrote a piece at the Gospel Coalition that we found and we loved called Pray, Don't Play Politics. Brandon, pastor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Brandon, what do you think? Is there a better way for us to go through the political season than perhaps what we've done up to this point? Uh, absolutely. Very impetus for the piece that I wrote. Uh, I see that many Christians today are falling into uh, the world's patterns of thinking about elections and the importance uh, of them. And so I think uh, prayer and uh, return to 
the hope of the scriptures uh, should serve as a, a bulwark for us against kind of this rising tide of political acrimony and uh, fear and anger and all the rest. Brendan, I, I can't agree more. That's why we had you on here. So let's talk about prayer, because you went through a, a series of steps here, five different things that we should consider. Uh, our, our time, of course, is always uh, as tight on the radio. But let's talk about, in a culture of cynicism, prayer promotes gratitude. Mm. Yes, because most people are polarized in their politics today, Christians included, uh, we tend not to have much gratitude unless our side is winning. And so the fact that Paul reminds us to thank God for the leaders that we've been given, whether the ones we're voted for or not, does reorient our minds uh, so that we have a uh, more Christian attitude toward the people who are uh, in office above us. Mm-hmm. I need a Christian attitude towards politicians because it it just feels so dirty, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I'm preaching to myself here when I say that. Uh, I have problems with a lot of people in a lot of places right now, and so this is very much a word to my own heart to say I'm grateful. And in part, I'm grateful that men and women are willing to step into what is very much a thankless job where, you know, at least half the country is going to despise everything you do. Uh, Gratitude is an important correction there, I think. Right. What about the uh, the current cultural obsession we have with politics? It seems to order our uh, choice of friends, maybe even our choice of spouses. Uh, it divides people in churches. It families. divides people in families. Um, and so it's it we're, by the fact that politics is doing that to us. Uh, it's revealing what our priorities are. Um, and so what how how can that be reordered? And do you think it can be? Yes, it can be, and it must be, really. Um, it's taken on an outsized role in our lives, politics, because it has so for culture, in large part because our culture has moved away from uh, Christianity and a focus on God. If you eliminate God from the equation, something is going to need to take his place, especially when we're talking about areas like uh, hope and progress and justice. What is going to bring about progress and justice and peace if we no longer have confidence in the Lord. Uh, it's going to have to be politics. Then. And, and so then every election becomes the fate of the nation, the fate of the world rests on it, whereas we should know better as Christians. The victory is already won. Our hope is in God. Even if our country is moving in a direction that we don't like, we know that God is moving history forward according to his purposes and to his perfect ends. And so there's a a peace that surpasses understanding in that knowledge, and that will calm our hearts and hopefully reorder our lives so that we don't have the same obsession that those around us do. Very good. So, Brendan, I mean... This to me is so key because, you know, we think, and you talk about this in your piece, uh, Pray, Don't Play Politics, that every election, this is the most important election of our lives. It feels as though, I mean, it just makes everybody so anxious. And, of course, you know, we're told not to be anxious about anything. But here we are, and, you know, we're just, you know, nine months or ten months away from a, another presidential election. It's already ramped up, as Cass said, coming in. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this culture right now, now, this culture of conflict. And, you know, we sort of we, we sort of trod the same 
road that you do. I can't imagine what it's like to be a pastor and to mm. even, you know, touch your toe on this. We generally try to stay away from politics on here, on this show, sure. because we know that we lose 50% of our audience, right? So uh, mm-hmm. you say in a culture of conflict that prayer seeks conversion. Please talk to us about this. It goes back to the reorienting that we experienced, um, that we were just talking about in the last section. Um, what matters most is not necessarily that we get the bills passed we'd like to see become law, because those aren't going to make it into uh, the future kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Uh, what we want to see, of course, is people coming into that kingdom as well, and that even includes people that we would regard as our political enemies. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem is that we we've, we've begun to see our political opponents as actual enemies, as opposed to victims of the enemy in many cases, um, if they are not in Christ. The, the prince of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers in the same way that he had blinded us. And what we want is for God to open eyes, uh, just as he did. We know that we did not, he did that for us. And so people that we look on as undeserving, uh, well, great, that, that, that's every Christian. So why would we not be praying that for um, others? That's Brandon Cooper, senior pastor at City View Community Church, Elmhurst, Illinois. Uh, Brandon's the author of A Word to the Wise, Lessons from Proverbs for Young Adults. Brandon, we want to thank you for helping us to reorient our heads, and thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Almost 80 years after the Holocaust, about 245,000 Jewish survivors are still living across more than 90 countries, a news report revealed yesterday. Nearly half of them, or 49%, are living in Israel. 18% are in Western Europe. 16% of the survivors are in the United States. 12% in countries of the former Soviet Union, according to a study by the New York-based Conference on Jewish Maternal Claims Against Germany also referred to as the Claims Conference. Now, this is interesting. Before the claims, before the publication of this demographic report, there were only vague estimates about how many Holocaust survivors there still are. Of course, their numbers are quickly dwindling, as most are very old and in frail health, with a median age of 86. 20% of the survivors are older than 90, and more women, Mm. 61%, than men, 39%. The vast majority, or 96% of survivors, are child survivors who were born after 1928, says the report. Uh, The numbers in the report are interesting, but it is also important to look past the numbers to see the individuals that they represent. These are Jews who were born into a world that wanted to see them murdered. They endured the atrocities of the Holocaust in their youth, of course, and were forced to rebuild an entire life out of the ashes of the camps and the ghettos that they endured. And the shocking thing, of course, is we are back once again. Anti-Semitism has reared its ugly, ugly head, and we are in many ways pre-1940s. Didn't you think we were better than that? I thought we were long past this. Of course, this is us as non-Jews outside looking in. Have you witnessed anti-Semitism in your life? Oh, yeah, sure, of course. I used to work in Squirrel Hill. Me too. I still, yeah, regularly be in Squirrel yeah. Hill and see it there yep. on a regular right. basis. And you go, what happened? Right. People- and I, I would say to people, I would think, I, you know, I, was, I wasn't in a position to say this to people, but 
If you don't like it here, leave. Like wh- People on the streets. What, what is... Okay, speaking of anti-Semitism, let me bring this up. Uh, so this week, Elon Musk went to Auschwitz. You heard that story, right? Uh, I've read a headline, but I, I do know this, right, that Elon Musk has been called out on his anti-Semitic views. Well, yeah, so he posted something on X, uh, and I, I'm i not on Twitter very much anymore, uh, so I, 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 I don't know what it was. But it prompted top advertisers, including Apple, Comcast, Disney, IBM, and Warner Brothers, to pull their marketing dollars from the platform. So that's a pretty big deal. He also came under fire from the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, um, which is an advocacy group that works on uh, on behalf of, of Jewish people. Uh, but anyway, Monday, he shows up at Birkenau, uh, one of the other concentration camps. Is that with, Auschwitz? With, it's right, I think they're right next to one another. Yeah. Um, with uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben who, Shapiro, Who is a really? podcaster, yes. Uh, both of them also set to attend a conference on anti-Semitism this week. That's interesting. So that's strange bedfellows. Mm-hmm. So Ben Shapiro, obviously a Jew, good friends with Elon Musk enough to travel with him to a concentration camp. Or I camp. don't know if... I don't know if he is good friends with him or because Ben Shapiro's Jewish, he said, hey, let me show you the story of my people type of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but 1.1 million people uh, murdered by the Nazis there just at Auschwitz and Birkenau. I just, I mean, here we are again. Again. What, World War Two? what, 85 years, 80 years mm-hmm. ago? I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know. What I guess that with Hamas, what's interesting to me is on the college campuses, these pro-Palestinian. Well, come on, this is the future, right? All these pro-Palestinian demonstrations, right? There is a vast chasm between the reality of life on a college campus and the rest of the world. I think that that was brought to the fore by Claudine Gay having to resign from Harvard and what's her name having to resign from Penn is, is their work. They're working in this little bubble of the, of the college reality. And when people outside the bubble find out what's happening in the bubble, they're like, you've got to be kidding. So what is it? Is it just ignorance? Is it stupidity or is it Jewish hatred? uh, Well, right. I I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think that it's the legacy of decades and decades of and decades of there only being uh, a liberal perspective allowed on a lot of college mm-hmm. campuses. And that somehow a conservative perspective, which used to be, even if there weren't conservatives on your college campus, I think we all valued education enough that we thought, okay, we'd, like to, we'd like to hear different people talk about different sure. things, right, and hear an exchange of ideas. In the last 15 years, man, there has been a tough turn where all of a sudden conservative ideas are met with, hey, don't, don't talk to me with your speech of violence. Mm-hmm. So now speech is, uh, is a violence. It's not just an act is a violence. And once that started, which I think was about 15 years ago, I think things started to spin out of control. So what's interesting to me is... So now we have, let me just break in and say, now we have Jewish students on campuses all across the United States who are afraid... To speak out. To speak, or afraid to to be injured. Right. right? To wear a yarmulke. Right. This is exactly the type of anti-Semitism that preceded all the things that, all the horrors that we saw in World War II. So if, if there ever was a time to wake up for all of us, it's now. And of course, what's happened in Gaza? I mean, the loss of life is incredible. And no one wants to see people murdered. 
right? Yeah, Especially the Gazans, you know. I mean, they're innocent in many ways, right? They're innocent. They're victims of their own yes. horrible government. So I'm reading this. Underneath the streets of Gaza, the reason the Israelis have been so brutal in their attack on Gaza is that it's estimated there is more than 450 miles of tunnels. 450 miles. Now, now Gaza is only 25 miles wide. So, oh my gosh. 450 miles of tunnels where they ran their complete operations. I mean, they lived underground, they drove cars underground. Uh, more than 6,000 entry portals in private homes, of course, in hospitals, in shops. So, there was an entire city underneath the entire country of Gaza. That's why there's been such brutality that Israel said, we're destroying all of these tunnels to ensure this never happens again. Because the enemy was living below, and they had access, quick and easy access, to come up, do their dirty deeds, and then disappear again. So you think billions of dollars of aid that the world has given to the Palestinians, they use that to build tunnels and make munitions and let their own people starve. Exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, just a small stretch of a tunnel would cost millions of dollars. You can imagine. I'm sure it had to reach close to a billion dollars to build 450 miles. Oh, my god! So people are uninformed. I think the thing is that if you would just read deeper. Okay. So speaking of reading deeper, I'm sorry I interrupted you. I read an article in uh, the Wall Street Journal about what your kid learns about the war on TikTok. Okay, so it was a it was a long in depth piece as a lot of the journal uh, front page articles are, and this basically said when your kid gets on TikTok to look at what's happening in the Israel Palestine war, and you think who's going to get on TikTok to look at the news? Listen, tens of millions of people get their news from TikTok, right? So the first thing it, it, the article talked about is the fact that the the most horrific videos are the ones that achieve the most clicks. Sure. And so if you end up clicking on that, then they're going to send you, according to the algorithm, more violent things. Yeah. So you're going to see just one violence after another violence yeah, after I see another it on my violence own feed. If, you're, if you're on TikTok, right? The other thing it said is 85% of all the content posted on TikTok is anti-Israel. 85%. How can that... So only so only 15% is really telling a tale about what Hamas is. Listen, I'm not trying to say that the Jewish government is in the right all of the time. Obviously, that's not the case. No, There's a lot that we can talk about um, as far as what's gone, gone on with, with, with the Netanyahu government. But I don't think there's a whole lot we, more we can talk about when, when Hamas attacked Israel. I mean, that was just an absolute slaughter. That was an absolute slaughter. Calling it anything else is just hiding from the actual Rape, facts. But if murder. but you're missing the facts if you're getting your news from TikTok. Well, that's just lazy. So that's well, that's you. You want to see what's going on on college campuses? I think a lot of people between the ages of 18 and 22 are getting their news from TikTok. So then, does it go back to the demise of the news media, where deeper, harder stories once were presented by reporters, and now that's disappeared? And now we're looking at. 60-second sound bites yeah. or 20 seconds, and people have made their mind up one point. feed after another. We need to read deeper. We need to study.
Hey, good afternoon and welcome. Thanks for coming along for the 5 o'clock hour of the Ryan Home. Dare I say, it feels like a, a spring-like day, despite the clouds. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And have you noticed how long the days are? Yes, I did notice it. We're here in the studio. Yes. Yesterday at 5.30, uh-huh. it felt like, oh. I know. I feel like we're getting somewhere. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. When do we uh, When do we spring ahead? It's at the beginning of March. That's only my uh, memory. That's so, not so uh, bad. I mean, we're, all of a sudden. We're it was. Gonna, I remember mm-hmm. it was short this year. Yeah, it's very good. All right. Um, so anyway, thanks for coming along here with us. Was it yesterday? Well, maybe maybe it was late last week. We were talking about countries who are most addicted to their screens. Oh yeah. In South Africa, weirdly, was, <laughs> it was the number one. They were like, they're spending ten hours a day looking ten, on screens. ten plus hours. Yeah. And um, the United States, we were in the neighborhood, but you know, like maybe fourth or fifth in the world, which right. surprises me. Mm-hmm. Well, get this. Uh, of course, our smartphones are many splendid things until we realize, of course, how much time we do spend on the darn things. Uh, that's why one New York-based company has started what they are calling a digital detox program. And the good news is they're turning it into a contest. Siggy's, S-I-G-G-I-S, known for its Icelandic style of yogurt. Do you know it? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, known as Skyr, S-K-Y-R. No? No. Is now inviting people to give up their smartphones for an entire month. Those who think that they're capable of the challenge can sign up for the contest by submitting a compelling essay explaining why you need a digital detox in your life and how it will impact you in a positive way, according to Siggy's website. Participants must be 18 or older and sign up before the end of the day on January the 31st. Ten fortunate winners who are selected are going to be notified via email and will receive the following. $10,000, a lockbox for your smartphone, a flip phone so you can still make calls, a prepaid SIM card for a month, and enough Siggy's yogurt for three months. That's cool. I would do that for ten grand. Ten grand, no Wouldn't smartphone. Would you do that? Yes, of course. I'd be happy to. I love the fact that they send you a lockbox for your phone. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> and a flip phone. And a flip phone. I mean, that's great incentive. So the so the if the question is, if you can do it with a dangle of ten thousand dollars, knowing the destructive elements of smartphones in your life, why not just save your life and do it for free? Well, yeah. Well, because ten thousand dollars is a lot more incentive. <laughs> So it's funny, you're a yogurt eater, and you don't know the yogurt itself. No. No, I don't. It's like, what would you say? It was Norwegian? Mm, Icelandic. Icelandic. Icelandic yogurt. Icelandic yogurt just sounds like it would be good. It sounds like it it would be Mm -hmm. very clean and cold. (laughs) So how many hours a day? Do you track your time on your phone? My phone tracks my time. Yeah. Any ideas? Do you want Uh, to disclose that? that Five hours, I think? Yes, me too. It's about five, yeah. Mm -hmm. What a waste of time. Isn't it? What? Okay, but here's the thing. I don't know how we would do this job without it. So that's the first thing. And I'm sure a lot of people are the same way with their jobs. Yeah, but here's what I think. I don't I know, I know that it can also be an excuse. It is. Because I've told you this before, uh my high school social studies teacher, Mrs. Payne. She was married to a guy, Ted Payne, who for many years back in the 1970s, had a highly successful talk show here in the city of Pittsburgh. Hmm. Ted Payne, he was my hero growing up. He's still alive. He lives in San Diego. 
He was a great conversationalist, a wonderful talk show. That was well, well before internet smartphones. So it's not impossible to do a talk show. I don't think fun. it is. Right, you're you're absolutely right. right. No, no, he was using. I mean, Doug Hurth was reading six papers a day. He right, he didn't have a phone. The problem is, though, we don't have newspapers like we do today. Right, right. the hard paper, the hard paper copy. Yeah, gone. so right, so that's not even a possibility. The way of doing anyway, it doesn't. We're just thinking about our jobs, but perhaps listeners out there are thinking about their jobs and trying to imagine if they could do it without a phone. Okay, but we're interested in news content, right? Right. Other people probably are not interested in news content like we are. No, they're just sure. interested in, interested in TikTok. Or maybe if you know if they're in marketing, they're they're going to have to know a lot about trends. They're going to have to know a lot about what's going on in culture. But just the if average person. Sales, how about you know? the average college kid? When you were talking, you know, most college kids get their news from TikTok. Mm-hmm. Right. They could step away easily. Probably. Right. Uninformed and dumb. So I wonder how many people are going to apply for this. You want to apply? I'm thinking about it. <laughs> By January 31st. Yeah. You have to write an essay. Yeah. You could write an essay. Yeah. I've written a lot of essays. Very good. Okay. Our smart, our smartphone addiction catching up with us. We'll take a, a quick break. Next, we're going to talk about Paul and his prescription for political anxiety in 2024. Stick around. For Pittsburgh's Christian Talk, it's the ride home here on Word FM. And so here we are. It's January 2024. November of this year, we will select once again another president. Mm. I think at this time, particularly, the anxiety that is running through this country, perhaps at an all-time high. We've just come through a pandemic. Uh, We see what's happening with the Biden administration, Donald Trump looming uh, in the not-too-distant future. We've got conservatives on one side thinking if Biden's reelected, it's the end of the country. Yes. We've got people on the political left saying if Donald Trump is elected, it's the end of the country. And we have a majority of people in the center in despair over the fact that these are going to be our choices. And all of us are walking around with smartphones in our pockets, following every move as though it's a, a chess game in real time. Is that enough to produce anxiety in you? Yes. Thank you for asking. Yes, I think all of us. Well, we're happy to welcome to the show once again Steve Bateman. Steve is the senior pastor of First Bible Church in North Alabama for over 30 years. He is the author of Which Which Real Jesus, Jonathan Edwards, Benjamin Franklin, and the Early American Roots of the Current Debate. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So um, is political anxiety a reality in your life? It absolutely is. Um, and it's uh, as pastors, I think most pastors would tell you they see this, this in their congregations as well. So it is, it is ever present. Okay. Yes. So anxiety, right? We are told not to be anxious. The Bible. For anything. Yes. But in everything. But even as believers, and I, and you, I think it's safe to say as believers, we're probably even more anxious than the regular, you know, secular world, which is very strange to see the church aflame with politics. So, Steve, talk to us about this. Your piece in the Gospel Coalition, Paul's Prescription for Political Anxiety in 2024. You say that reasonable people do the right thing and trust God with the outcome. Yeah? That's right. In fact, you've already alluded to that uh, verse in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious 
about anything, but in everything, mm-hmm. by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's probably, if you ask most people, that is going to be in the top ten of their favorite verses in the Bible. Yeah. And uh, they, in particular, guys, people have always loved Philippians. It's an optimistic, joyful uh, letter. I mean, over and over again, rejoice in the Lord, Paul tells us. But uh, a lot of times they start in verse 6 and forget that right in front of that, in verse 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Mm. The Lord is at hand. And so that's really the the center of, of my piece is exploring what that means to be reasonable and, and how that's an essential part of dealing with anxiety. That's excellent. So in 2024, it feels as though we have lost our reason. Yeah. That we are not reasonable people anymore for a variety of reasons. That's fair to say, Steve, isn't it? I think so. To, to a large degree. And it, and it, what, there are actually two or three reasons I wrote the piece. One is, uh, for the sake of the church's unity. So we see all that anxiety and polar, polarization in the in the world being brought into the church, that divisiveness, but also the tactics and the way people speak to and about each other publicly now uh, in terms of civil discourse. If that's brought into the church, you can see how that can cause a lot of division. So that's, that's it. the other thing that's real important about the command to not be anxious is in the context of division in the church. So just a few verses earlier, he entreats Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So these two women were divided. And then people choose their sides if there's a division in the church, and then that can cause greater division. And it's in that context that he says, let your reasonableness be known Mm -hmm. to everyone. And it means to believers, to unbelievers, but Unity in the church depends on it. But by Paul being reasonable, Steve, he ended up in prison. That Well, exactly right. And that's one of the uh, points that I want to make in the beginning is that that's what reasonable people do. They do the right thing. The reason he's in prison, and essentially he's a political prisoner. There are like, there's just so many political overtones in the book of Philippians. But he's there because he has is, he is proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. And uh, yet, with great joy, he keeps telling the, the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. He's very optimistic, even though he's in that situation. And, and so, over and over again in Scripture, you see this, that reasonable people, because they understand that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that they can trust God, they can do the right thing, and then they trust God with the outcome mm-hmm. of that. Uh, the the result of Paul being obedient to the Lord was that he was put in prison. But if you look all through Scripture, uh, that's what God's people do. Sometimes it works out for them in the short term, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but that's that's exactly what he did. He obeyed, and as a result, he was put in prison. So that's reasonable people, as you write, seeing God's hand in adversity. What does being reasonable, like how does that figure in to your thought pattern and how you look at your reality if you are suffering in some way? Well, one of them is, uh, 
when we get into a situation where it's difficult and we start to suffer, then we can start to kind of rationalize in our mind that, well, maybe in this situation we can um, compromise, all right? And so we, we adopt, this is what Christians have to watch out for. Essentially, we say that God is a God of objective truth and that our ethical system is objective moral standards. Moral authority is found outside of ourselves, not inside our subjective feelings. But in the end, we can justify consequentialism, which is, in essence, uh, the ends justifies the means. So a lot of this political anxiety is is ginned up. It's manufactured anxiety by people who want something from us. They may want money. They may want to vote, whatever it is. And that fear and that anger can lead us to say, well, there's so much at stake here. Our nation is at stake. Our country is at stake. The, you know, what it, whatever it is, the political power. Therefore, a righteous end can be can justify an unrighteous means. Mm-hmm. And and so if we don't if we don't believe that God's in control, we can start to to tell ourselves, well, then we can use the same tactics as the world. If they lie, we lie. If they cheat, we cheat. If they slander, we slander. If they insult, we insult. And that's exactly what the scripture tells us not to do. Steve Bateman's with us. He's a senior pastor of First Bible Church in North Alabama for over 30 years. He is the author of Brothers Stand Firm, Seven Things Every Man Should Know, Practice, and Invest in the Next Generation. So, Steve, in your piece in the Gospel Coalition, Paul's Prescription for Political Anxiety, you go off and, and, and talk about Paul in prison and Paul's life, where he is right now, sort of mirrors ours, that there is political propaganda you talk about, which is fascinating, just about everywhere, that commission monuments served as billboards. There were plays and coins, cults, poetry, all had the same message. And in many ways, Paul in prison, writing these letters and finding their way out, traveling the road, they bore perhaps the um, the, the question are these things authentic? As we check facts and we're surrounded by propaganda, what exactly is real? Yeah, so, I mean, we think that our situation is unique, and, of course, in a lot of ways it is, but they had an information highway also, and it was called Roman Roads. And the way the Caesars would control the the empire, they had to get their messages out, their proclamation, their decrees. They'd communicate with their, with Roman magistrates throughout. And uh, so they had a courier system. It was the public way. And uh, so the, the Caesars would issue these decrees, and they come out from Rome throughout all the empire. And uh, But also traveling those roads were other couriers. There were, if you wanted to get a message to people, for instance, the Book of Philippians, and, and this gets back to God's hand in the adversity. If Paul had not been put in prison, we wouldn't have the book of Philippians today. Mm-hmm. He, he would have gone, he wanted a personal visit, but in lieu of a personal visit, he wrote a letter. And as a result of his suffering in prison, we have that letter today, which is one of the, you know, Christian's favorite books in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, so that letter came from Paul along those same Roman roads that the Caesars used to get to the church at Philippi. Now, he also says in First and Second Thessalonians that there were forgeries 
going about in his name and in the name of the apostles that they had to watch out for. Mm. And false teaching was coming into the church through those forgeries. So, so how do you know this letter is legitimate? And one of the ways is just the way that the letter was sent by someone the Philippians knew was their own Epaphroditus. And that was the other thing that the Caesars, Persia had a, a system, a courier system also, and it was faster because it went from, it's kind of like our Pony Express, uh, courier to courier. But the Caesars used one courier throughout the whole trip, which slowed down the trip. But what that meant was when the message got there, they could uh, confirm that it really did come from the right place, and then he could, that courier could fill in some of the details. That's what Epaphroditus was able to do for the Philippians. So what does that tell us about the way we access information or check facts or make sure that we know what we're talking about? What's real? Yeah, so uh, it's the same principles, but it's a lot more detail. In other words, you, you, you check your sources. Is this, does Paul really write this way? And, you know, sometimes Paul will say, I'm writing this in my own writing. Just look at that. Uh, but we have to learn a whole new skill set. And to be honest with you, I think a large part of the discipleship process in the church now will require people, require us to teach people how to, how to navigate all the information mm-hmm. and disinformation that hits us. Yeah. So we're going to have to learn skills uh, on how to manage Internet data. That's we we'll have to understand what what is lateral reading. Uh, how do we triangulate the truth? Uh, a lot of people think they're well read because they read deeply, but these days you have to read widely. Mm-hmm. Because if you read deeply, and you start reading your own sources that you prefer, those algorithms just keep taking you into deeper into that hole of people who already agree with that position. That's good. That's really good. So the lateral reading, you're going to have to, people have to learn technical skills. God's people are going to have to do this if they're going to use the Internet, and that should be part of our discipleship process. Amen. So, Steve, let's end where we started to talk about anxiety because, of course, uh, I think we live in this deeply anxious age. And one of the prescriptions to rid ourselves of anxiety, which Paul prescribed, is that we should pray. That reasonable people, as you write in your Gospel Coalition piece, reasonable people pray. Yeah? That's right. Because, okay, even if you get to where you're really skillful navigating the information, and even if you're skillful in principled political persuasion, and all the things that we need to be doing as, as believers, nothing's going to happen unless God does it. Uh, and so I, I saved that one for last, not because it's least important, because I wanted to, to leave the peace with that emphasis. That, that in fact, the same uh, construction is used when it says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Well, then just a few verses later is when he says, let your requests be made known to God. So when it comes to our relationships with people, we should be famous on earth for our reasonableness. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we should be famous in heaven for our requests. And we, that means, as according to 1 Timothy, we pray for those who are in authority in order that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Why? So that they can hear that there's one mediator between God and man. 
And in a free society, the message of the gospel can travel faster. So a freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of the press that lets me write articles to put on Gospel Coalition, all those things, that's what we pray for as we pray for the the political situation in our nation. And Steve, knowing the position that Jesus has, the exalted position that Jesus has, and knowing that he's the victor over every darkness, uh, most significantly death, that does, if we think on that, it does make us more reasonable. I think it does, right? Because it just makes us, it it, it makes us realize that we're not carrying the, the weight of not up to us. Right. It's not, we're not carrying the, the weight of humanity or the weight of reality. Oh, that, and that's the relief for anxiety. It, it, we're, the more anxious we are, it's an indicator that we're trusting in ourselves, that it's up to us to do this. Uh, our anxiety goes away the more we realize and put our trust in him. And, and just knowing history really helps us with this. Rome's gone. All the Caesars are gone. The church is still here. And, and that's, not, that's been that way for 2,000 years. That's not going to change now. Steve, so much. Yeah, really, it's, really, it's really excellent. Thank you. Yes. Your You're thoughts welcome. Are, yeah, thank it's you. so necessary to hear this today. We really do appreciate your time. Pumps at gas stations. Oh, yes. If they work. That's my point. Mm-hmm. So, my wife's car has this chronically low tire. Mm-hmm. Just the rim. Yeah. You go to sheets or get go or whatnot. Right. You pull in there. One, There's a line, first of all. Always. And then oftentimes the machine doesn't work. So when it works, it's a beauty thing. You're in, you're out. I kind of gave up and just bought one for our home. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I bought one last night for our home. Do you know why? Because Because air pumps at gas stations don't make any sense. Well, they do make sense. They don't make sense. I mean... They don't make sense. If they were working all the time, they would make sense. But as things currently are, they don't make sense. Right. Well, I think every good driver has a... It's kind of like having a, excuse me, a secret fishing hole. I've got a couple of secret places. Okay. So I thought I had a secret place. Yeah. Because I had driven past the gas pump mm-hmm. and not or the air pump and hadn't used it. I pulled up last night. Yeah. Long line. Quarters. Oh, we got to pay. Out of my pay. Now, pain. wait. Wait. And it's not automatic. So there's so you don't know where you are. <laughs> Talk about anxiety. So you're guessing. Yeah, yeah. Am cool. I? I'm right. going to explode my right. tire. I get. Oh no, you just got to use some. You know, but I don't a have. A, I didn't have a gauge with okay. me because I because the pumps usually have a gauge. That is it. Doesn't make sense, John. All right, does this make sense? The dishwasher. Yes. We were married for 15 years before we had a dishwasher. Yeah. To be honest, I don't mind doing dishes. That's it's crazy. It's a great stress reliever. That's, it's a. Go for a walk. Get a hobby. Really? The dishwasher is so excellent. It makes so much sense. My wife makes dinner. You know, uh, me and one of the guys, 
we in there, we're cleaning up the kitchen. I don't mind doing the dishes. I really don't. So what? Your you you your your Spartan existence is going to Sans dishwasher. Right. Preclude you from using the dishwasher. I mean, I know it makes sense, but in some ways you're you're lo- you're losing it. I prefer it. not to. No, I just I want you to I want you to grasp the goodness of our current time and say yes to the dishwasher. Then what how about the pods? Yeah? More plastic. No. I'm More buy- plastic. I'm buying these new ones that don't have any plastic. Come on, what is that all about? Yeah, Earth Breeze. <laughs> What's it have? It has paper? It's, it's it's just it dissolves. Yep. It dissolves the plastic the- that puts it in the water system. Well, aren't you Dishwa- negative it's Nancy? It's the truth. Dishwashers. No, they make all the sense. Fill up your tires. So it's weird. I mean, we're, we're headed into the end of January. It's Valentine's Day is right around the corner, the and heck? I know, and I know that because walking into my local grocery store, I'm assaulted with all the candy options. Oh, of course you are. Why is every? Do you notice every holiday now is just candy? Right. Are they selling Halloween candy yet? We're getting ready. Right. I mean, but that is Valentine's Day. Candy. Right. And then then the next holiday is Easter. Mm hmm. Right. Which is a lot of candy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I mean. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of Valentine's Day, a special night out for everyone, sweethearts and all. Uh, We're going to be on the Gateway Clipper for our Valentine's dinner cruise Friday evening, February the 16th. Mm -hmm. A night out on the Three Rivers featuring a great dinner, fabulous views of the city. Kath and I will be there. We'll be the uh, host and hostess Mm -hmm. and hope that you would join us. I would say this, a fairly inexpensive special night out for you and your sweetheart. WordFM.com. This is the kind of thing that a lot of people do when they visit Pittsburgh. They yeah. think, oh, there, there are three rivers here. I'm going to go out on a riverboat. Yeah. But a lot of people, all of like us, who live here don't do that. And when you go out on the river on one of the Gateway Clipper boats, you think, this why haven't cool. I done this before? I love it so much. I mean, it's really, really beautiful. We've had such a good time. Yep. We started doing this maybe well, during COVID. So yeah. maybe four years ago. And we've just never stopped because we've had such a great time with listeners. The people that you meet and it's you hang really out with. really terrific. Really, you get to meet new friends. And the cool thing, the things that you see from the boat, from the shore, you go, what is going on over there? I know. I had no idea this was happening in the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah. So join us. Friday night, February the 16th. It's a great night out. We did this last year. People said, it's too cold. It wasn't cold at all. It really wasn't. No, it was really excellent. So join us, wordfm.com. Bring your sweetie along. We'll be happy to spend the night with you and uh, hope that you join us. Okay, wordfm.com. Our good friends, John, at nextpittsburgh.com. Mm-hmm. And they put to, uh, put out a lot of content related to, you know, the Western Pennsylvania and yeah. its environs. And uh, there was an article that came out this week on restaurants. Now, if you follow any of the local papers, yeah. uh, new restaurants are always a big thing, right? So sure. these are the new things they're going to drop, you know, in this area of town, this area of town. But Next Pittsburgh, and th- of course, Next Pittsburgh does that as well. But this time, they're talking about tried and true restaurants. Tried and These tried. are the restaurants that have endured for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they not only have they been around for a long time, they've been good for a long time. And that's hard to do. Places you can count on, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I love places like that. So I thought I would read to you what Next Pittsburgh came up with, and then I'm going to ask you about your own. Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, okay. A few really good Pittsburgh restaurants that have lasted at least a decade. At least. Yeah. Café du Jour, 
1107 East Carson Street in the South Side. Hmm. I do not know this restaurant. Did it used to be in Bloomfield? Cafe du Jour? Maybe, maybe it's just me. No, that's Cafe Sam. Oh, right. Yeah, that was right on Bomb right, Boulevard? Right. Yeah, yeah yes. Cafe Sam. No, this is Cafe du Jour. Uh, it says it's found the sweet spot between great food and completely low-key, unpretentious Ooh, atmosphere. Okay, good. Yeah, so I'm not familiar with Cafe Neither du Jour. Neither am I. No, but no. But I'd like to find. Alla Familia. Oh, say no more. Are you kidding yeah, me? That's fabulous. It is yeah, yeah, yeah. a gem. Mm-hmm. It's tremendous. The food, the atmosphere, the bar. Everything. It's like, it is like Pittsburgh with an exclamation point. It really is. Isn't it? Except it's, it's kind of hidden. the white tablecloths. Yeah. It's the fabulous service. Yeah. It's in the middle of crazy Allentown in mm-hmm. his business district. You would drive past it and never know. It goes on there. It is 10 out of 10. Yeah, yeah I agree. That's what I think. Loved it very about much. All of we took friends there. They loved it as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Umi. Japanese in uh, right above Soba and Shady Side. Oh yeah, have you been there? Yeah, but I haven't mm-hmm. been there in a long Me too, time. Yeah. I'm glad to know that they're still Me, there. Yeah. Okay. If you haven't been to so- and why are why am I not I going know. there? I really I love Umi. Also Soba, um, though that's a uh, kind of a mixture of things. You can get Burmese, you could get Korean, mm-hmm. you could get like combinations of things. Both Umi and Soba, delicious. Casbah. Casbah. I've never been there. You've never been there. After no. It's probably been there 30 years. I've never been there. Maybe My wife and I, that. we've celebrated anniversaries there, parties there. It's our go-to, like, oh, let's go f- and have a nice meal. We're going to spend some money and have a really nice meal. Casbah. That's an excellent place. Well, the lamb at Casbah. Is that? Oh. Uh-huh. Really? Lovely. Lovely. Indoors okay. and outdoor dining as well. Yeah. Well, it's still doing it and doing excellent. it well. Uh, Piccolo Forno in uh, Lawrenceville on Butler Street. I've never been there. Oh, my gosh. Really? It is... Delicious. Mm-hmm. The pizza there is what they really, really do. Really. And their pizza is so really. beautiful and tasty. And there's so many variety. It's just, I, I can't say enough about Piccolo Forno. Lovely. 11, which is on Smallman Street. Oh, yeah, sure. Yep, I love 11. I'm glad it's still there. Though I also haven't been there in forever. Forever and forever. ever. Forever. It's been at least a decade since I've been to 11. It's kind of funny. I mean, the pandemic, <laughs> the pandemic did so much damage to restaurants. When you hear about places that are still open, you think, oh, thank God. I know. They made it through. Exactly. Piper's Pub. Have you ever been there? No. Carson Street in the South Side? Never. Me neither. I can't tell. I don't. The, the South Eight, Side is not where eight, I go to. All right, 1828. Hmm. Piper's yeah. Pub. Yeah, they said uh, it's a dedicated clientele okay. with a yes, it's actually good take on Scottish British pub grub, <laughs> like Toad in the Hole, Bangers and Mash, that sort of thing. Okay, that sounds fun. Okay, Piper's Pub. Tesoro's. Yes. Mm hmm. Top of my list. Lived in Blo- my, Top of my list. Was it? Yep. Lived in Bloomfield for a long time. Bar none. It's the greatest burger place it in is. the city. It and is. fish is to die for oh, as the well. the fish is spectacular. And it's, I'm telling you, there's no restaurant I've ever been to that smells as good when you walk mm-hmm. in the door as Tesoro's. It's small, but mm-hmm. it's the essence of like a neighborhood great place. It and is. And a bar that's like, you know, film wire, you know, something out of the 1940s. Excellent yep. Tesoro's. Yep. And a nice little back, back patio as well. I know. Isn't that a nice mm, addition? Lovely. Kaya, Strip District, Smallman Street. That's been there forever as well. I was just there a couple weeks ago. Same people who own Casbah right. own Kaya. Right. Great, great group. I love Kaya. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, salmon Mediterranean salad. Yeah, lovely. Delicious. Kaya's really terrific. Max's Allegheny Tavern. 
Holy Listen, smokes. I used to, I, I would go to Max's with my parents when yeah. I was in like third grade. It's been there forever. forever. It sure has been. I, when's the last time you were there? I can't even think I of the couldn't, time. I, I couldn't tell you. Why haven't we gone there? Uh, because it's you know, in that part of town. It's been a bar or hotel for more than 100 years. It's in the Deutschtown section mm-hmm. of the north side on Sweetman Street. Um, you can get your pretzels there, your potato pancakes, your brats, you know, whatever your German cuisine is. I mean, I feel like I just I, I have to go there. That's the 15 that Next Pittsburgh came up with. I want to know if you have any others that you chose that weren't on their list. Okay, well... So, so. <laughs> 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 you know what? Winkies wasn't mentioned. No. Winkies long since gone. Thank you, though, for yeah, yeah. bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> also not mentioned. Okay. Well, mine are much more sort of Yinzer-ish. Great. Right? Okay. Tesaro's, the aforementioned Tesaro's. Yep. The best diner in the city. Ritter's. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's on my list, too. I love Ritter's. Yep. The best pizza for me in the city. Yeah. Minio's. Minio's. Mm-hmm. The Squirrel Hill Grill. Oh, my gosh. Right across from the Manor Theater. It is... Is it the squirrel? No, it's the Murray Avenue Murray Grill. Murray Avenue Grill. Yeah. I love that place. Great that's neighborhood a, place. Oh, that's also on my list, too. Mm-hmm. And there's a place in our neighborhood, and also in your neighborhood, there's two of them, Dad's. Have you been to Dad's? Dad's? Yeah. What's it's Dad's? like, you know, it's a it's a sandwich, pizza, bar place. Yeah, it's a great little place. There's one in the North Hills, and there's one up in uh, the East End as well. Never heard of Dad's. Excellent. Friend. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Go to. How about you? Um, I added DeLuca's in there. Oh, DeLuca's. On Penn Avenue in the Strip. That's akin to Ritter's. It really is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't feel like you can really not talk about it. I feel like uh, you should put Pamela's in there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like you should put the original Pancake House in there. Oh, yeah. That's been there at least a a decade. Yeah. I mean, that's my favorite out of all of them. Yeah. uh, I don't think you can have this conversation without the North Park Lounge. Yeah. The North Park Lounge has been a consistent presence in my life Mm -hmm. since I was probably... Seven. Yeah. Always good. My grandmother used to take me there. Okay, so if you're going to say North Park Lounge, then you've got to say Rico's. Rico's. McKnight Road in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Rico's has been there forever. Yeah. And that's really, that's some good dining. David and all of the people that do, Lisa, Fine my dining. favorite waitress. Excellent stuff. Um, and I think we need to mention Vincent's of Green Tree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's not too far from our studios. That's kind of like our go-to lunch place, right? And if you're looking for the best white pizza, mm-hmm. I think it's the best white pizza in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Is it Vincent's of Green Tree? Italian soup as well. Yep. Italian wedding soup. And the last one I'd say is Dianoia's on Penn Avenue in the Strip. Very nice. Remember when I brought you their meatballs? Yes, you did. Because you were feeling down? <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Didn't that make you feel better? <laughs> it did, very of much. Because so. they're this, excellent. You should do the same thing for a friend. Very nice. Thirty years ago, Pastor Gary Chapman published a book, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. That book has sold more than 20 million copies and has been in 50 different translations across the globe. Now, the, the idea, the premise of The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts, is so embedded now in popular culture that people would say to you, it's kind of like, in, well, in, in a shorter way, kind of like the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Right. That my love language is gifts. Mm-hmm. My love language is touch. My love language is attention. Right? Mm-hmm. So embedded in who we are that it, it's a shortcut to, to, you know, who we love. Right? Oh, my wife, she loves this. 
Well, now there is backlash about the five love languages, where social scientists, psychologists are saying none of this holds any water. A big backlash. Some scientists are questioning the validity of the concept. Others have suggested that in some situations, love language thinking can do harm, encouraging adherents to stay in difficult or even abusive relationships. I'm reading from the Washington Post from last week. This month, a paper published in the journal Current Directions to Psychological Science reviewed the scientific literature and concluded that core assumptions about love languages stand upon shaky ground unsupported by empirical evidence. Empirical evidence. Quote, I feel like academics haven't really taken this seriously, says Emily Impert, a psychologist and director of the Relationship and Wellbeing Laboratory at the University of Toronto, who co-published the paper. Gary Chapman, in response, says, the languages stand by themselves. It's been proven scientifically and emotionally that the languages that work. they resonate with people. Yes. What do you think? Well, I have never subs- I've never subscribed to it but not be not purposefully i just never really looked into it so i don't know what my love language is or you I don't, don't know. My, my i remember early in our marriage my husband said i know what your love language is cable <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't have it and i was and that's all i wanted was cable yeah well there's something to be said about that yeah. it makes you happy right it draws you yeah Closer in some way when he got when you guys got cable right weren't you? Excited? I was I that was the I feel that the was same the way. most incredible Christmas. Gift. I feel the same way. Seriously, I could not get over it. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely could not get over. Yeah, it. Yeah, I'm in the first year we got Roku. I was like super excited. That was my love language. Right. Streaming. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, but I, so are they? I wonder if they're objecting to the fact that Gary Chapman is a Christian. Do you think that that's part of it? Probably some part of it. Gary Chapman says, you know, I'm not a researcher. Um, he does, though. It's uh, more of a common sense perspective than it is a data-driven perspective, as I understand, right? But Gary Chapman, do you know this? He has degrees in anthropology and a doctorate in, edu- in adult education. And he says that he formulated the five languages and wrote the book after a decade of counseling couples as a pastor in North Carolina. And he noticed patterns in problem areas that keep cropping up. He says, I'm not a researcher. But I do think that there are significant numbers of people over the 30 years who have found that concept to be the thing that turned their marriage around emotionally. Okay, so if he's been counseling for more than a decade, then he probably has counseled more people than the researchers who are saying that his uh, theory doesn't hold water. He's seen it, right? right? He said he holds firm in his belief that almost everyone has a primary love language, which tends to stay with us throughout the lifetime. The only people he's encountered who say all five are equally important are those who either were always loved or never loved. There are also seasons of life, and there are circumstances when another love language may jump to the top for a period of time. So what about the idea of, now I didn't know this, I mean, talking about people staying in abusive relationships because of that? Because of the love language I, thing? I don't know. Look, you can say that any 
any type of, of relational theory could keep people in a negative relationship. One key concern about love languages, again from this article in the Washington Post, is that it could be interpreted as suggesting that unhappy partners change or compromise their own needs rather than finding common ground. Critics cite one antidote in Chapman's book, so particularly concerning. It's a story about Anne, a woman that he counseled who was unhappy in her marriage. She asked Dr. Chapman, is it possible to love someone whom you hate? Anne said she had felt used rather than loved in sexual encounters with her husband. Although Anne's husband had never attended counseling, Chapman surmised that her husband's primary love language was physical touch and his secondary language was words of affirmation. Chapman advised Anne to focus her attention on those two areas for six months, give verbal affirmation, but stop all verbal complaints. He also told her to take more initiative in physical touch. And apparently, there's the problem. Oh, that could be a problem. Yeah. But what? So does that mean that the whole theory is bunk? No. No. I mean, and I think we understand a lot more about instances like that than we did when Gary wrote that. Now, to his credit, he he put a new edition out in 2015. And he said, quote, by reaching out with physical gestures like ruffling his hair, uh, his advice now on sex is to ease into this slowly, mm. although still have physical contact. Ruffling your hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's the problem with any, one size fits all. Yeah, and that's also the problem with reading with books that last for a long period of time. Yeah. Is sometimes some of the examples are out of date. Yes, and but that doesn't mean I think that you have to throw out the entire. Uh, point of, of the work. book. I don't no. think so. I don't know. I mean, it's a complicated thing, especially when you're dealing with issues of abuse. Of course. And we just, I, I, as a culture, we just understand a lot more about it now and than I, we did a couple decades ago. I'm not saying that that gives anyone any license. I'm a not free trying pass. to. No, of course not. I'm not trying to let anybody off the hook, but I do think it's a reality. And there's not a one size fits all, right? I mean, this is just, dare I say, Pop science, yeah, or pop psychology. I think, so. I think so. There's a, you know, there's a, there's truisms to it. Right. It's not digging down deeper into a person's psyche. Right. That's and all. it's and it's also not gospel truth. So it's not like you have to live your life by it. Anyway. Okay. Speaking of love language, one of mine is going to PNC Park. How do you? What do you think about a role as Chapman? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's so about weird. it. But baseball in the winter. That's good yeah. news. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.